Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just before 10am on Tuesday the 10th of August 1954, only 10 hours after handsome young Arthur Griffith has been shot dead outside Checkers nightclub in Sydney and his model girlfriend Shirley Beja is being led into the city's central court. Reporters and photographers swarm around the 22-year-old blonde beauty whose face and figure are familiar from her many newspaper and magazine appearances. In the court, police prosecutor Sergeant W. Maisie says the Crown's case will be that Shirley committed premeditated murder. He asked the magistrate that she be remanded in custody until the coroner's hearing on the 6th of September. But Shirley's solicitor, Philip Roach, Sydney's number one criminal lawyer, who over the years has represented notorious crims like Darcy Dugan, Kate Lee, Tilly Devine and Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, argues that Shirley should be released on bail. Roach says, quote, The deceased Griffith was living with the young lady. They were not married. It might be suggested that he confronted her with another woman last night. Beja was driven into it. Although she should not have given way to it, she was driven into it by the action of this young man on this and other occasions. The solicitor assures the magistrate that if released on bail, Shirley will live with her mother Edith, who's in court to support her daughter, and that she'll report to the police once or twice a day. Release an accused murderer on bail? The magistrate thinks not and denies the application. In the public gallery, Edith Beja gasps and collapses. 
Across the court, Shirley slumps against the shoulder of her police escort as she's led away. Revived and helped by another two officers, Edith cries over and over, Where's my baby? Where's my baby? The answer is, in a holding cell, awaiting transport to Long Bay Jail, where she'll remain until the coroner's hearing. The Sun, which has featured Shirley Beja many times in the past few years, recounts all this high drama on its front page, accompanied by a pretty photograph of the accused in happier days with the headline, Model on Charge of Murder. And in reporting Roach's argument for bail, which he almost surely knew would fail, The Sun and other Sydney newspapers put into the public sphere the idea that immoral two-timing Arthur Griffith somehow caused his own death and that it's Shirley Beja who's the real victim. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode the model and the murder case. Two days after Shirley Beja appeared in Sydney's Central Court, her solicitor, Philip Roach, applied for bail again. He said there was no question that anyone other than Shirley had shot Arthur Griffith, but he claimed that she had a, quote, complete answer for the charge, and having heard it, it'd be up to a jury to decide whether she'd intended to shoot him or whether it had been an accident. In response, the police prosecutor said that Shirley had made, quote, certain admissions. He was referring to the verbal and written statements we heard in part one of this episode, but Roach didn't yet have access to these certain admissions, and whatever they were, he said, a jury would also need to decide what Shirley's mental condition had been when she'd been interviewed by police. Justice Heron denied bail, ruling, quote, If the girl was in such a state of mind only 48 hours ago as to commit such a terrible offence as has been suggested, it is possible that, if released, she might attempt to defeat justice by the infliction of some injury on herself. He also said that the circumstances suggested a certain degree of premeditation. From here, Shirley's defence would be argued by QC John Wentworth Shand, with solicitor Philip Roach instructing. Like Roach, Shand was high profile and in the past few years had secured remarkable acquittals in sensational murder cases. But even his brilliance would be tested by Shirley's case and, as such, he'd need to explore every possible avenue of defence, including that of insanity. So Shand recruited to his team a young lawyer named Lionel Murphy because he had a background in science and contacts in the field of psychology. In her book, Lionel Murphy, A Political Biography, author Jenny Hocking writes that Murphy explored whether Shirley had been temporarily insane and in a state of automatism when she pulled the trigger. Murphy had long discussions with a friend who was a practicing psychologist and also with a prominent Sydney University professor of psychology, but these conversations didn't amount to anything. Shirley Beja was sane, 
And that's what a psychiatrist who examined her in Long Bay Jail on the 11th of August found, though he did report that she was depressed, suffering a deep sense of grief and was a potential suicide risk. At this time, Shirley pleaded to be allowed out of jail to attend Arthur's funeral. That wasn't going to happen. Nevertheless, Shirley did find a way to be a presence at his funeral when it was held the following day at St Andrew's Church of England at Rosebury. Amid the masses of flowers surrounding his silver-mounted casket was a wreath bearing a note that read, quote, Arthur, I love you, Shirley. A week later, Shirley's barrister, John Shand was in the Supreme Court mounting the third argument for her release on bail. This time he argued that her written statement to police should be tendered in court. It was, and every word as heard in part one of this episode was printed in the newspapers, painting a portrait of how Shirley had suffered for the love of a foolish and selfish playboy and how she'd accidentally shot him when all she'd really meant to do was give him a fright. Justice Heron was unmoved and, for the third time, Shirley was refused bail. On Monday, the 6th of September, 1954, the city coroner's court was packed and surrounded by reporters and photographers as Shirley Bezier stepped from a police car, flanked by detectives and a policewoman. The accused looked sombre in a black coat and skirt with black gloves and a mauve hat. As had been the case with her mother's court appearance a decade earlier, Truth newspaper went to town in describing her appearance. Quote, Beautiful blonde cover girl Shirley Bezier, Shirley Bezier of the flawless complexion, lissom figure and stunning blue eyes, this week faced the biggest battery of cameras in her brief career. This time there were no gay smiles, no confident poses. Pale, haggard, with lips trembling and tears welling in her eyes, Shirley Bezier stumbled past the flashing cameras into the emotionally charged atmosphere of the city coroner's court. Edith blew Shirley a kiss as she was taken inside, and in court, Maurice Bezier was there to support his daughter. With coroner Mr F.L. McNamara presiding, the first witness was Constable Alan Jones, who testified that he'd been the initial officer at the murder scene. He said that he'd seen Arthur Griffith was dead, his left hand still in his pocket, his face covered in blood, and that he'd ordered Shirley and Edith to remain where they were. But when he looked their way again, the Beiges were hurrying away along Pitt Street. Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett testified that he had intercepted them, asked what had happened, and Shirley had admitted shooting Arthur with a rifle. Blissett recounted her verbal admission at the police station and her then making a somewhat different, longer written statement. Blissett told of finding six 22 calibre long rifle cartridges in her pocket and of finding the rifle, golf bag and Shirley's coat on the back seat of her mother Edith's Ford console. 
Arthur Griffith's father, Arthur Senior, said his son lived with him but usually spent the weekends away staying, he'd believed, with his friend and Shirley's neighbour, Donald Lee. Arthur Senior said his son hadn't brought any other girls home while he was seeing Shirley, nor had he mentioned any. In a moment of unintended morbid humour, Shirley's defence counsel John Shand quizzed Arthur Senior about his feelings towards Shirley Bezier. Shand, you acquired a high opinion of her? Arthur Senior, we thought she was a very nice girl and we had nothing against her. And your opinion still holds? Arthur Senior replied, well, we have changed it a bit. At this stage, Shirley broke down and wept. During the lunch break, there was even higher drama. Shirley let out a gasp when she saw the large number of photographers and onlookers waiting outside the court. She turned away, paused and kissed her mother Edith as a dozen cameras flashed. Photos of this desperate mother-daughter moment made newspapers everywhere. The next witness, Donald Lee, told the court that the 22 rifle that had been used to kill Arthur was his, that he'd kept it on top of a cupboard in a box in his flat, and that he thought Shirley had seen him demonstrating how it worked. He told the court that on the afternoon of the 9th of August, he'd played golf with Arthur before hanging out with him and Shirley for a while at his place. Then the couple had gone to her flat, the implication being that they were going to have sex. Don said he'd gone to work at 5pm. Arthur had come into Checkers at around 11 and joined a party of two men and two women. Around this time, Don said he'd seen Shirley come into the club, have words with Arthur and then leave. About half an hour later, Edith came in and Arthur left with her. A few minutes after that, Shirley had rushed into the club, calling out hysterically, Donny, Donny, I've hurt Arthur. Shocked, Don had rushed up to the corner of King and Pitt Street and found his friend's body on the pavement. QC John Shand put it to Don, quote, You could see that Shirley was very much in love with Arthur. Don, yes, very much so. It would not be going too far to say he seemed to be her life? Don, yes. They had planned to marry? Don, there was talk of it. The next witness was the government's medical examiner, Dr Percy, who said that about an inch of powder burns and smoke staining on Arthur's cheek indicated that the bullet had been fired from between two and six inches from his face. The second day of the hearing started with Edith Bezier telling in greater detail the story she'd told Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett soon after the shooting. What she described was what we'd today call a night of stalking. She testified that Shirley had come to her on the evening of the 9th of August and said, Mummy, I would like you to come with me. Arthur's playing and I would like to find out myself. Shirley explained that Arthur had claimed to be going to the dentist but aroused her suspicions when he stepped out in his best threads. 
In Edith's Ford console, the two women went into the city and saw Arthur walking down King Street arm in arm with a girl and then go into checkers with her. Both Beja women were upset by the discovery and Edith said she wanted to take Shirley home. But her daughter refused, saying, quote, Come on, mummy, I will tell him now. They went into checkers. Shirley confronted Arthur, who was sitting at a table with a group of people. Edith said that when she and Shirley went to leave, Arthur had followed them, demanding to know, quote, Who phoned you? Who told you? Edith said he should return home with them, to which he supposedly said, Did you phone? If you did, I'll... I'll what? wasn't explained. But the implication was clear that he was angry and possibly even going to get violent. Edith said she'd taken Shirley back to her Kellett Street flat in King's Cross and waited for her outside. Shirley's plan, she said, had been to get all of Arthur's stuff and fling it on the dance floor of Checkers to embarrass him. Instead, when Shirley came back to the car, she only had Arthur's golf clubs, and then they went back to Checkers. Edith went into the club, called Arthur to come out, and followed him to the parked console. Edith told the court, quote, I saw him walk to the car. He spoke to Shirley. Then he put his head in the car and leaned over to Shirley and said something to her, but I didn't hear. I saw Arthur lean right forward as though pushing Shirley, and next thing, he slowly came out of the car. He fell at my feet slowly. I looked down at Arthur. I noticed he had blood on his forehead. Shirley was sitting in the car, and I noticed she had something in her hand. I realized what had happened, and I took the rifle from Shirley. As I was pulling it out, the window was going up. What she asserted, and what Shirley would later also say, was that the back window had been fully wound down, allowing Arthur to stick his head in and to push Shirley. But after Shirley shot him, she had started to wind the window up, only to leave it about seven inches from the top, which was how it was when the police took control of the scene. Of course, it seems strange that Edith should reach in through the window to grab the rifle by the barrel and pull it out rather than simply open the door and that while she was doing this, Shirley was winding the window up. Another interpretation of the evidence would have been that the window had never been down any further than those seven inches and Arthur had been shot when he put his face to the gap to speak to Shirley and in this scenario it's unlikely that he was able to reach in and push her. In court, continuing his depiction of Arthur Griffith as a two-timing no-goodnik, Barrister Shand elicited from Edith Beja that she had earlier on the night of the 9th told Shirley, quote, I told you, he has been playing for a long time. The supposed other woman from the night Arthur died was Checkers ballet dancer Jill Bowen Daniels, and she told the court she had known Arthur casually, that they had had coffee a few times, and that she'd let him drive her home from the nightclub. 
She told the court she'd only been with him that night because Arthur had, on the spur of the moment, asked if he could join her and another girl when they went to the movies between Checkers floor shows. Escorting her back to the club, it had been cold and so they'd walked arm in arm. Jill said she didn't know Arthur was with Shirley and that she hadn't been competing for his affections because she had her own boyfriend and was still seeing this man. Next to testify was a waiter named James Brown who worked at Club Sammy Lee's and he said that Arthur and Shirley had been regular customers but that Arthur also went there on his own and wound up sitting with other girls. This sounded like Arthur was being a player, and maybe he was, but what the court heard next also made it seem possible he was just being social. A woman named Dale Baldwin testified that she'd been at Checkers with a fellow named Richard Spencer and another couple on the night of the 9th of August. Her date Richard had asked Arthur, who was alone, to sit at their table. He had, and soon after, Shirley had confronted him, looking, quote, excited and very annoyed. Dale said Arthur had handled his upset girlfriend coolly, maybe even coldly. She said, quote, it just seemed as though he didn't care. Hearing Dale Baldwin's testimony, Shirley sobbed and fell forward in the dock in a faint and had to be caught by a policewoman. In the public gallery, Edith was also in a state of near collapse. The coroner ordered that Shirley be escorted from the court, with Edith helping her, saying, quote, Oh, my Shirley. And there was mob hysteria at the lunch break when Shirley was driven away in a police car watched by a crowd of 200 people, with 30 of them mobbing the vehicle. After lunch, Shirley returned and the hearing continued with Checkers receptionist Patricia Partridge the next to testify. She said Arthur and Jill Daniels had come back into the club at 11. Shortly after that, Shirley and Edith had come in and she'd witnessed a confrontation in which Arthur had told Shirley to, quote, shut up. Shirley had replied, quote, I won't shut up. You're not going to make a fool out of me. After Shirley had confronted Arthur, Patricia said he had smiled, quote, more or less a smile of embarrassment. She too saw Edith return and lead Arthur from the club. She then heard a shot and Shirley had come down the stairs hysterical saying, quote, Oh darling, I've shot Arthur. Oh God, what have I done? The next witness, Roy Leslie, who'd loaned Arthur the two rifles in his possession, offered some striking testimony. He told the court that he was with Arthur and Shirley at Don Lee's flat about two months before the shooting. When Arthur had said he was going out, Shirley told him not to be late. According to Roy, she said something like, You know what happened last time. In Shirley's presence, Arthur had then explained, quote, I came home very late and she was waiting in bed with a gun, but luckily she had fallen asleep. Roy did say that the couple had regarded this incident as a joke. 
Mogan Jensen, head waiter at Checkers, told the court that on the night Arthur died, he'd told him that Edith was, quote, just one of them that wants to keep you under the thumb. The final witness was taxi driver John Rowland, who told of seeing Edith and Arthur leave the club, of hearing the shot, of seeing Arthur fall down, of trying to help him, and of Shirley in the back of the car with the rifle across her knees and then at her dying lover's side crying, I've shot Arthur. Having heard from a dozen witnesses over two days, the coroner called for Shirley, who was outside again trying to compose herself after another collapse, to be brought back into court to hear his finding. Head bowed, calm for once, Shirley listened as he said, quote, I find that the deceased, Arthur Barry Griffith, died on August 9, 1954, in King Street, Sydney, from a bullet wound in the head, feloniously and maliciously inflicted upon him by Shirley Patricia Beja at the same time. I further find that the said Shirley Patricia Beja did thereby feloniously and maliciously murder the said Arthur Barry Griffith. Denying Shirley bail, he committed her to stand trial for murder. On Monday the 22nd of November 1954, after more than three months in custody, Shirley Beja was brought from Long Bay Jail in a police van for her murder trial at the Central Criminal Court in Darlinghurst, Sydney, with Justice McClemens presiding. While convicted murderers in New South Wales still officially faced the death penalty, with capital punishment not abolished until the following year, Shirley Beja didn't actually have to fear execution as no one had died by the hangman's noose since 1939. But if she was found guilty of murder, she might very well get a life sentence. And that was an especially daunting prospect for a woman aged just 22. That morning, a crowd of about 200 people, including some of Shirley's fellow models and women with children in their arms and packed lunches in brown paper bags, had queued from about 8am outside the court's big green steel doors. Once they were opened, these people scrambled for the good spots. All their eyes were on Shirley, wearing a black wool frock with a high neckline and a short grey woolen coat as she stepped into the dock. The Sun newspaper noted, quote, Her blonde hair was swept back from her ears into soft curls and she wore light makeup and brilliant red lipstick. Shirley pleaded not guilty in a clear voice, but this was one of the few times that she'd be calm during proceedings. Shirley's first breakdown came as prosecutor W.J. Knight opened the Crown's case by telling the all-male jury that the accused had rested the rifle along the back of the seat of her mother's car and fired it only six inches from Arthur's face. As he spoke, Shirley sat, eyes closed, face twitching, head thrown back, shaking with sobs. Prosecutor Knight warned the men of the jury to put 
all emotions aside, to forget anything they'd read and to not feel sympathy for Shirley because she was a young woman and, quote, not unattractive. He said the crucial aspect in the case was the difference between Shirley's verbal and written statements. In the first, she'd said she'd only meant to frighten him by showing him the gun, which didn't explain why she'd chosen that one from Don Lee's flat and loaded it over two already assembled rifles in her own apartment. While in the second statement, she'd said she was going to fire the weapon to scare him. The prosecutor said it didn't matter whether Shirley had consciously pulled the trigger or not. He told the jury that what mattered was that she had acted with reckless indifference to human life by getting the rifle, assembling it, loading and cocking it, taking it to the crime scene and placing it within six inches of Arthur's face. Witnesses from the coroner's hearing testified again, and while their stories remained the same, the jury also heard a few additional details. Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett said the trigger of the 22 rifle in evidence required significant pressure and would not go off easily. He repeated Shirley's verbal statement while Knight read her written statement. Shirley's barrister, QC John Shand, questioned Arthur's father, who said Shirley had visited his home numerous times and had been, quote, a very welcome guest. Shand also elicited from Arthur Sr. that his dead son had been, quote, high-spirited and that he had enjoyed life and enjoyed living. Arthur Sr. said, under questioning, that he didn't know whether his son had been playing around. When Jill Daniels repeated her claim that she and Arthur had only been casual friends, Shand wanted to know if the dead man had been friendly with other girls too. Jill denied impropriety, saying, quote, He was friendly with them the same as he was with me. Dale Baldwin, who'd shared the table with Arthur at Checkers, now testified that during Shirley's confrontation with him, she'd said, quote, Somebody rang me up and I followed you. An additional witness, Albert Richardson, a radio announcer who'd been broadcasting from the Checkers lobby that night, testified that when Shirley and Edith had arrived, Arthur had asked, quote, Who phoned? Albert had heard Shirley say, quote, Never mind who phoned, give me the keys. You are not going to make a fool out of me. Later, the radio announcer saw an overwrought Shirley come back into Checkers saying, quote, I've hurt Arthur, I've shot him. Oh, Donnie, I've shot him, before she collapsed on a couch. Checkers head waiter, Mogan Jensen, also witnessed this hysteria saying, quote, it made such an impression on me, I will never forget it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
When the government's medical examiner, Dr. Percy, came to give evidence, Shirley's barrister, John Shand, successfully argued it'd be prejudicial for the Crown to show the post-mortem photograph of Arthur to demonstrate the bullet's entry point and trajectory. Instead, Dr. Percy used a gold pencil to illustrate the bullet's path. What the jury learned was the bullet had gone through Arthur's brain at an angle of 10 degrees, which was consistent with it having been fired more or less level with his face. That is, from along the top of the car's back seat. Had it been in her lap, the rifle would have been pointed up with the bullet's angle of entry closer to 45 degrees. As Dr. Percy testified, Shirley averted her eyes and cried, with her solicitor, Philip Roach, heard telling her, quote, pull yourself together. At the start of the second day of Shirley's trial, her barrister, QC, John Shand, made a bombshell announcement, quote, the accused will give evidence. Shand summarised what the jury would hear, quote, the accused will tell you she did not realise the gun was cocked. She never anticipated that Griffith would come along and push her arm while she had the gun. In effect, she herself did not perform the act of firing the gun. When this push came, it was such as to throw her off balance and bring the rifle up. Shand told the jury Shirley had said, quote, I had not the slightest intent of hurting, killing or injuring Arthur in any way. Shirley, Shan said, was the victim. Quote, she has lost the man that meant all the world to her. She is an ordinary, healthy Australian girl who was really in love. More than that, she was confident of Griffith's love. I suppose that many people who read the facts of this case thought, well, he was a rotter anyway. Beja will say that was not so. She will tell you he was a fine type of young man. There was a ripple through the court as Shirley stepped into the box and, for the next hour, answered questions in a soft, almost inaudible voice, punctuated by sobs. Questioned by Shand, she briefly recounted her childhood, her odd jobs after school, her career as a model, and how, through Donald Lee, she'd met Arthur Griffith. Shirley told the court how she'd quickly fallen in love with boyish Arthur and claimed that she was still in love with him. He had hurt her by seeing other girls, that was true, but he'd also claimed that they didn't mean anything to him. Shirley said, quote, Arthur told me he was still in love with me, but it seemed he had to have someone else too. Shirley sobbed as she said that despite all of this, she didn't really believe that Arthur had had any serious affairs. They had planned to marry when he came back from England after an 18-month stay. Quote, He had wanted to go away for so long and I felt he would not settle down until he had done so. I felt that if he gave up his overseas trip, he would always be sorry and regret it. Shirley claimed that on the afternoon he died, they discussed marriage and children in greater detail than ever before. But then, when she'd confronted him at Chequers the first time, he'd been so very casual about her anger. 
Shirley told the court she took the gun just to frighten him and that she had no intention of hurting him. She thought if Arthur feared she might hurt herself, then he'd come back to her. Quote, I knew the whole thing was a silly idea even before I went down the stairs. Shirley remembered being on the back seat of the car when her mother went into checkers to get Arthur. John Shand, quote, What was your state in regard to Griffith? Shirley, I wanted him back. I was very upset. Were you sure of the attitude he was going to take? No, he had been so casual. I didn't know which way he was going to be. I felt very tense and very upset. I was not thinking about the gun being there, but I was holding on to something with my right hand. I didn't know at the time what it was. It must have been the gun. Shirley said she didn't remember Arthur approaching the car. The first thing she knew, he was at the window. Arthur, she said, told her he'd be home later. And, quote, He just gave me a push and told me not to be a silly kid like he did when we had words. Now Shirley sobbed loudly, tears pouring down her cheeks and she collapsed against the side of the witness box. After another adjournment, Shirley said she didn't remember hearing the gun go off. Quote, I saw his face and then I saw him falling back. I didn't realise what had happened, but I knew something dreadful must have happened. I started to wind the window up. I wanted to close it all out. Shirley claimed she had not handled a rifle before and did not know that the gun was, quote, ready to go off. Cross-examined by Crown Prosecutor Knight, Shirley said she'd had the gun across her knees in the car and that she didn't know why she hadn't put it on the floor behind the front seat. She reiterated her claim that the rifle had gone off when Arthur was speaking to her. Knight, the barrel of the gun was from your knees out toward the door on the passenger's side. Shirley, yes. And it wasn't right over against the door, was it? Crying, Shirley answered, I don't know where it was. Knight went on the offensive. Quote, it was on the back of the front seat of the car. What do you say to that? Shirley, I say it wasn't. When he pushed you, he pushed you with his right hand, didn't he? Shirley, I don't know whether it was his right hand. You knew his left hand was in his pocket when he was on the ground, don't you? I'm not sure. He was standing near the middle of the car, wasn't he? Shirley nodded, but didn't answer. Knight. And his left hand was not near the car, I put it to you. I'm not sure. Do you say you don't know where his face was when he was leaning into the car, talking to you? Shirley. I don't know. Asked if it was her thumb or forefinger around the trigger, Shirley wept as she said, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't remember holding the gun up. Knight. If the gun was forward on your knees and you pulled the trigger, you would have to pull it with your thumb. Shirley, I don't know. I don't remember it being a gun. I don't remember it being a gun. I don't remember anything until I saw him. I don't remember the gun going off. With this emotional testimony, Shirley had just said she didn't know what she'd done or where the rifle had been. She hadn't even directly affirmed that Arthur had pushed her. 
Next, Edith testified about Arthur's last moments alive and her daughter's first as an accused murderer. Quote, He slowly came out of the car and fell down at my feet. Edith said Shirley got out of the car and said, quote, Oh, mummy, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't mean to hurt him. Knight put it to Edith, quote, Did she say to you, I didn't mean to do anything. He pushed me. I was only going to frighten him. Edith, no. Knight, you put that in your statement to the police. Edith, I was so mixed, I may. Shirley wept loudly as her mother left the stand. Walking past the dock, she told her daughter, quote, Buck up, Shirley. But Shirley wasn't the only hysterical figure in court that day. As John Shand addressed the jury, a grey-haired, middle-aged man in a fawn suit suddenly stepped from the public gallery and up to the bar table. He said, quote, Excuse me, Your Honour. My name is Munro. I am a faith and science master. Is this the Bayesian trial? Well, I come from Newcastle. I just got here. I am representing the girl. Justice McClemens ordered two policemen to arrest the man for contempt and have him taken for psychiatric examination. Closing for the defence, Shirley's barrister John Shand asked the jury, quote, How often have you heard of an experienced person out shooting, getting through a fence, and either shooting himself or someone else? I say this because death by a gun does not necessarily carry with it a conception of murder. The jury, he said, had to decide whether this was murder or an accident. Quote, Did the accident spring from a deep-rooted hatred, burning rancor, desire for vengeance, or a silly tiff? Shan said that if Shirley had loved Arthur, which seemed evident, then the men of the jury should shudder at associating that emotion with murder. Showing just how easily and innocently Arthur had died, Shand sat in a chair with the rifle across his knees and acted out how a push could cause it to accidentally go off if one's finger was on the trigger. When the trigger clicked, Shirley threw herself sideways in the dock and sobbed into her hands, with solicitor Philip Roach trying to calm her. This poor creature, Shand told the jury, was the victim. Quote, This is a girl who has never handled a gun before. It seems ironical that if Beja is innocent, she should suffer more than any person concerned, should have spent three months in prison, and should have stood a very agonising trial. Closing for the Crown, Prosecutor Knight told the jury, quote, The old adage says there is no fury like a woman's scorn. This would never have happened if there wasn't this insane jealousy by Beja. He reminded them of the expert opinion of where the gun had been when it had been fired. Shirley, he said, had either committed murder or, at the very least, by virtue of how she'd set the scene, was guilty of manslaughter. Justice McClemens summed up for two hours. He told the men of the jury 
they must not be swayed because Shirley Beja was, quote, an attractive young woman. They had to weigh the testimony and evidence they'd heard and decide between one of three verdicts, murder, manslaughter, or not guilty. He said that if the jury decided Shirley had intended to kill Arthur, or if they found she had acted with reckless indifference to his safety or with intent to commit grievous bodily harm, then they had to find her guilty of murder. If they found the rifle had gone off accidentally and without any intention to kill or injure, they had to deliver a verdict of manslaughter. If they were considering a verdict of not guilty, he reminded them that there was no unwritten law in such cases. Quote, There is no such thing as a crime of passion in our jurisprudence. After deliberating for more than two hours, the jury at 7.40pm announced that it had reached a verdict. Shirley was brought into court and sat hands folded in her lap. She rose to her feet and gripped the rail of the dock as the jury filed in. Then the foreman announced that the jury had found her guilty. Shirley stood in stunned silence as confusion rippled through the court. Some present had heard guilty, but others had heard the foreman preface that word with not. Not guilty. Justice McClemens immediately sought clarification. Quote, You find her not guilty of murder and manslaughter? The foreman said, quote, Yes, both. People in the public gallery cheered and clapped and women wept and embraced. Court officials tried to silence the crowd, but to no avail. Furious, Justice McClemens said these people were disgraceful and if he could identify the offenders, he'd have them committed for contempt. As all that happened around her in the dock, Shirley Beja finally realised the truth. She'd been found not guilty. She was going free. Two policewomen ushered Shirley to a room adjoining the court where her father waited. There, she collapsed into his arms crying, Oh, Daddy. In her car, Edith was told of the verdict. She said, quote, Oh, thank God for that. Can I go in and see her now? Maurice left and Edith and Shirley were reunited. Outside the court on this Tuesday night, a large crowd waited an hour to get a glimpse of Shirley and her mother as they left. But police took them out the back way. Shirley again in a state of near collapse and helped to a car by her solicitor, Philip Roach, and others. It was Roach who fronted the press, saying that Shirley had, quote, slipped into the country for a few days. Quote, she is too emotionally upset to see anyone or talk about anything at the moment. Except that wasn't true. Shirley was just a few miles away at her brother William's place in Bondi. When the press got wind of this, reporters descended, so Shirley used three young women as decoys. These young women left the house and hurried to a car, which burned off with journalists and photographers in pursuit. 
The car dropped two of the women at Botany where they hurried away, while a third was dropped at Sydenham Station. None of these girls was Shirley. But this move wasn't just to protect her privacy, it was to protect the scoop and the deal. While Shirley was holed up, supposedly too emotionally upset to see anyone or talk about anything, she and Philip Roach were negotiating with the Sun newspaper for an exclusive. In return for £1,250, which is about $45,000 today, Shirley posed for a portrait that on the 25th of November took up the entire front page of the Sun. The next day, the newspaper began her serialised life story as told by Shirley to one of their reporters. Over four lengthy instalments, she recounted her early life, various jobs and how she'd gotten into modelling, the ups and downs of that glamorous career and how she'd met, loved and never meant to hurt Arthur. As for her future, Shirley said, quote, I could not face the public again as a model. I would always feel they had come to a parade more to see the model in the murder case than the clothes. Even if I am wrong about that, I would never feel comfortable. I would always be wondering what they were thinking. What is the public thinking now? The answer was obvious to anyone who'd followed the case, that she'd gotten away with murder, or at the very least, manslaughter. And the public was well within its rights to wonder why the jury had returned a not guilty verdict given the weight of evidence against her. How much had those 12 men been swayed by Shirley Beige's youth, beauty and celebrity? How much had her repeated sorrowful outbursts played on their sympathies? How much had they believed John Shan's insinuations that Arthur Griffith had been a two-timing cad who maybe got what was coming to him. In the sun, Shirley could afford to be magnanimous. Quote, I don't blame people who think the jury was wrong, for I, Shirley Bajer, the accused, standing in the dock waiting for the verdict, was convinced it would be manslaughter. But in reaffirming her claim that Arthur's death had been an accident, she already saw fit to rewrite what had been established in court. Quote, Anyone who is interested enough to read this will no doubt have read the reports of the coroner's inquiry and the trial. They will know my defence was that, being terribly upset, I decided to take one of the guns I found behind some golf clubs to give Arthur a fright. But that wasn't close to true. It was indeed one of the main prosecution points that she'd ignored two available guns in her own flat to go get another one she knew how to use and then had assembled, loaded and made it ready to fire. And that she'd taken the golf clubs in her mother's car with the express purpose of hiding the rifle among them. In the Sun series, Shirley also made a disturbing claim that she and Arthur living in sin had played a part in condemning Arthur to death and her to suffer forever. Quote, We are taught that we must pay for all our sins. No matter how hard I look at my imperfect life and what I know of Arthur's, I can't understand why we should have had to pay such a grim price for our sins. 
Arthur has paid for his sins with his life. I am paying for mine and shall continue to pay by living forever with the dreadful knowledge that through me, someone I loved more than life itself, someone who himself loved and enjoyed life so much, has lost his life. As for her grief-stricken future, Shirley said, quote, It has now been decided that I am to go to the country with mother for a month or so. That will be wonderful. I am longing to go for long walks by myself where no one will see me. I have decided, after this visit to the country, to come back to Sydney and face life here. There's no evidence to indicate that Shirley took off to the country in December 1954. She may have. What we do know is that through her solicitor, Philip Roach, in the first week of December, she issued two writs each seeking £5,000 in damages. One was against John Fairfax and Sons and Associated Newspapers Limited, publisher of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sun Newspapers, the very company that had just paid her £1,250 for her story. The other was against Bathurst National Advocate, Newspaper Printing and Publishing Company. Neither of the writs disclosed why Shirley was suing for the modern-day equivalent of $350,000. The most obvious reason would be defamation. In any event, nothing came of this legal action. Instead, Shirley and Edith booked passage to England on the Orentes, which was due to set sail from Sydney on the 30th of December. Over the next week, in the words of Perth's Mirror newspaper, a national game of hare and hounds played out, with the Orontes the hare and journalists the hounds. At every port, Melbourne, Adelaide, Fremantle, reporters met the ship, anxious to score a last interview with Shirley Bajer. But she and her mother were elusive. Finally, in Fremantle, a ship's officer confirmed that while the Beiges had been booked, they had cancelled just before sailing time. After that, well, Shirley and Edith staged a remarkable disappearing act. According to the Dictionary of Sydney, which has an entry about Shirley Beiger, an internal John Fairfax and Sons memo from March 1955 that's held in the State Library of New South Wales makes a reference that suggests Shirley was, quote, living and working quietly in Melbourne. Was that true? Perhaps. What's intriguing is that while electoral rolls found on Ancestry.com.au list Edith Pearl Beja at various Sydney addresses through the 1930s, 1940s and early 1950s, she's not found again in these records after the trial. Shirley Patricia Beja, who by 1954 was of voting age, was never listed in available electoral records. I checked for both of them under Edith's maiden name, Macaulay, with no result, and they're not listed as having left Australia on any available passenger records. Neither do they appear after January 1955 in any available contemporary digitised newspaper at Trove, newspapers.com or the British Newspaper Archive. So, what became of them? 
I don't know, but there are several possibilities. Their form in terms of throwing off the press after the trial and on the Orontes means they might have been able to leave the country without making the newspapers, possibly doing so quietly via a flying boat out of Sydney with these records not yet digitised. If they stayed in Australia, then they would have attracted less attention in Melbourne or another city where Shirley's face wasn't as well known. In such a place, they could have changed their names by deed poll or by marriage, and it is feasible they just quietly reinvented themselves. Researching Shirley Beige's story, I was struck by the incredible similarity to the 1925 case of Audrey Campbell Jacob in Perth, Western Australia. The circumstances, from how she shot her lover in public and sent a wreath to his funeral, to her mother's role in a defence meant to portray her as a victim, are simply uncanny. I can't help but feel that Shirley's QC, John Wentworth Shand, and her solicitor, Philip Roach, who between them had decades of legal experience, perhaps even used it as some sort of playbook. Judge for yourself by listening to the Forgotten Australia episode about the case Murder on the Dance Floor. While we have no idea what happened to Shirley and Edith Beja, we do know what happened to other players in the story. QC John Wentworth Shand had another five years as one of Australia's most brilliant criminal defence lawyers before he died at the age of 62 in 1959. Solicitor Philip Roach spent another quarter century defending Sydney's underworld before he died in 1982, aged 86. Their young legal helper, Lionel Murphy, went on to become an Australian senator, Gough Whitlam's attorney general and a high court justice, though the last years of his life were marred by allegations of corruption before he died aged 64 in 1986. As for Shirley's mentor, June Daly Watkins, well, she and her agency continued and continue as a force in the modelling world, with June most recently reported to be teaching deportment in China at the age of 92. As for June Daly Watkins' other young star from the 1950s, Jeanette Elphick, who'd done modelling jobs with Shirley, including that oddly relevant photo shoot for the Ford console, well, I've explored her life and times in the bonus episode, From Model to Movie Star. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you can, I'd love you to leave a review at iTunes because it really helps other people find the show. For photos and articles from the Shirley Beja case and for more stories, head to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.